Welcome back to the Dirt Rich Podcast. My name is Jared Lumen, and today we're going to kick off part one of a two-part series with Dan Zimmerly on vegetable production. In part one, we'll dig into some of the keys to vegetable production and soil health, and in part two, we'll discuss business management as it relates to vegetable farming. Uh, Dan was actually a guest on the Dirt Rich Podcast before, and that was back on episode 33, and in that episode we discussed his farm and how he grew his CSA from 8 to 80 members, and so be sure to go back and check that out. It's going to offer a lot of context to to him and some of the the discussions we're going to have today, but maybe as a refresher, Dan, if you wouldn't mind, just give us an overview of your farm and some of the work that you do for SFA. Sure, sounds good, yeah. Well, I'm glad uh, to be back on the Dirt Rich podcast. Uh, just a quick overview of our farm. So we are situated southeast of Mankato, Minnesota. Um, so Mankato is a town of about 50,000 people. Uh, and we farm on about three acres of vegetables and two acres of pasture. Um, and on those three acres, we market those vegetables through uh, our farmer's market uh, in Mankato, uh, CSA program, and then a little bit of wholesale as well. Uh, but like 90% of our sales are direct to consumer. So the wholesale piece is, is pretty small. Um, and then on our two acres of pasture, we just have a very small flock of laying hens uh, that make for good Instagram fodder. So <laughs> that's awesome. uh, and then my work with SFA. Uh, so when I first started with SFA in 2020, I was brought on as a community organizer uh, and I helped set up the Minnesota River chapter of uh, SFA. Uh, and since then, I'm moving into more uh, sort of specialty crop um, consulting and support uh, with my work at SFA. So it's still a little bit undefined, but one of the things that I'm working on now is a grant for the Region 9 area, um, and that just educates farmers on soil health uh, in our region. I, I appreciate it. That's cool. And you're definitely, it, it seems like in the, the time that I've gotten to know you, you uh you know what you know what you're doing. You know it well. So I'm I'm looking forward to learning from you here. And I kind of warned you before the podcast, but I'll warn our listeners: when it comes to vegetable production, I'm very much a novice, <laughs> and you know I would not consider myself an expert. So I apologize if I make myself sound stupid or ask questions that maybe uh you know maybe pretty rookie for for a lot of the listeners. But hopefully, there's somebody out there that is in a position like me who might be interested and in, and might learn something from this as well. But as I, I think through like this idea of vegetable production, there's a lot of questions that come to mind. Uh, but one of the first ones would be sort of around the idea of maybe plant species selection and, and timing. And, and I'm not sure if that's something that requires a lot of intentional thought, but I guess I'd turn it over to you and ask kind of like right off the bat when it comes to starting off a business and you're thinking about all these different vegetable or you know species how do you go about deciding what you're even going to produce? Yeah, uh, that's a, a very timely question because um, we're in the sort of the midst of of revisiting that, which we do every year uh, when we're uh, looking over our seed catalogs and deciding what we want to plant for next year. And so when when I was first getting started, I kind of stuck with things that I knew how to grow already. Um, and then so it was like fairly simple things or simple things from my point of view, just uh, having grown up with a, a mother who had a large garden and taught me, you know, how to grow green beans and potatoes. So we started with things like sweet corn and potatoes and carrots and green beans and those kinds of things, things that I knew how to grow well and knew that I'd get something out of. Uh, and over the years, we've kind of added on other things, things that I didn't know how to grow very well. So we would experiment with those in a s- sort of smaller trial where we weren't betting the farm, so to speak, on it. Sure. And so just to see if we could figure out how to grow, 
you know, this or that. Uh, and so some of the things that kind of fell into that category for us as we were kind of bootstrapping our farm were things like um, eggplant, uh, lettuce. We didn't grow a lot of lettuce when I was growing up and the lettuce that we did grow was pretty bitter. And since then, I mean, now we grow lettuce, you know, nine months out of the year, just about, wow. uh, and it is rarely bitter. Uh, and it's one of the biggest crops for us. So we're, we're adding stuff all the time. Um, and then we're reviewing varieties, what worked for us and what didn't work for us. Um, and trying to determine if that's farmer error or if that's a, um, you know, if, if it's a variety that didn't work for us. So um, we're always kind of looking at that and just trying to decide based on our variable, like our conditions, our variables, what the best variety to plant is. And then, you know, we don't change everything every year. Uh, we we have, you know, the, our, our sweet corn varieties, we've been growing the same sweet corn varieties basically since since year one except that we will be switching this year because we trialed a variety that we like better. So for eight seasons, we grew the same variety of sweet corn. Uh, and then this year we trialed a new corn that we liked better, uh, that performed better for us. And so we're, we're going to switch all of our corn to that. Wow. Um, and so that's just an example of one, you know, kind of one, one thing, but yeah. so we're, we're always looking at different varieties and what, what will work for us and try to hit like, we're trying to take feedback from our customers to see what they want mm -hmm. and then balance that with what we think we can sell and produce well and yields well and that kind of thing. So it's it's kind of a balancing act. We're trying to hit a lot of different uh, sort of conditions and trying to find the best balance of all of those things. Yeah. And that you kind of touched on a question I wanted to ask is how much do you weigh customer feedback? Do you get much customer feedback? Do you have to engage in that or do they give it freely and then and how do you weigh that in your decisions as far as what you what you can do yeah well beings as it's the midwest we don't have a uh i mean we do have people that definitely say oh you should grow x y mm -hmm. or z mm -hmm. um but it, it's not the majority most people wouldn't volunteer that information you know we'd have out of say a 90 member csa we'd have like two ish members that would be like oh i wish you grew blah but if we ask them in a survey, which we do every year, we send out a sort of a season end survey to try to, you know, take the pulse of what's going on on the CSA, especially for the folks who we don't interact with. We have one drop site uh, where we just we don't see the people we drop off the CSA shares and then we're on to the next drop site. So we don't see those people and we don't get to talk to them. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, we're trying to take their feedback. Um, and, we, and we do. I mean, it's critical, I think, to I mean, I'm I mean, I'm growing for our customers. I'm not growing yeah. because I want, I mean, I'm growing because I want to eat it too, you know, but mm -hmm. I'm trying to meet the customer's demand. So that that's a very critical piece for me, at least deciding what to grow. I, I have to balance that with, well, do I actually think that I it's like profitable to grow this, this crop or is the risk worth uh, taking? One example, I know that people can grow uh, sweet potatoes uh, sort of in this part of the state. Um, and it's something that we haven't tackled because, well, one, I don't have a ton of experience growing. I don't have any experience growing sweet potatoes. So I would just be starting off from a blank slate. So that's one reason. That's not a reason to not do it. But the other thing is they take a lot of space and a lot of time. Uh, and so it's a little bit riskier of a proposition. And the yield um, is can be hit or miss. It depends on the weather you have because you need pretty warm weather to grow yeah. decent sweet potatoes. Well, that's that's an interesting point too. like of the considerations in addition to just what people may want or what we're in an environment where we can produce is the other factors like 
that where you take up a large amount of space for something that maybe produces minimal. What are the other factors that you have to consider, I guess, when selection? I thought whether it was on a previous podcast or just in a conversation we've had, you talk about some that are uh, plant species that are extremely labor intensive to maybe manage or to harvest. I mean, is that a when you're getting started, should you avoid certain plant species just out of the challenge or something? Or or I guess, how do you, you just have to sell it at a higher price point or how, how does that all get balanced? Yeah, I mean, that ties into some of, some of the stuff that I'm most interested in right now is just mm-hmm. like uh, cost of production and profitability, uh, not to sound too corporate. Um, but I, I mean, it's important for a small farm to know what your numbers are so you can stay in business and continue to produce these foods for people. And so I guess to to your point of if there's anything you should avoid if you're getting started, I would I would definitely say things that you're you don't have a lot of experience growing. And there's some stuff that's more more technical, like growing growing lettuce in the middle of, of the summer, July and August is very difficult in in Minnesota. It's not something I would encourage somebody to to try i mean you should try it and see if it works for you but don't don't plan to rely on that you know rely on your your tomatoes and green beans and, and those kinds of things in the, in the middle of summer that you can pretty safely and easily grow uh in those months you know lettuce is, is difficult so those are the kinds of things that i i would avoid and did avoid as i was learning and, and growing and so uh, as far as variety selection it's it's tricky because you know you're you're peering through the seed catalog and they have like four or five sentences, but it doesn't it doesn't say everything about the variety. It just says the highlights. Yeah, uh, it doesn't say you know it never says anything negative about yeah. about the the you know because they want you to buy the mm-hmm. seed that's in their catalog. Otherwise, why are they dedicating catalog space to it? So that's tricky. Um, but usually you'll see uh, like a phrase like widely adapted in a seed catalog, especially in like Johnny's. And that usually means it's a pretty safe bet that it grows well everywhere or grows well in most places. Um, it's just adapted to most growing conditions. So so that that's kind of what I, I would look at. And I mean, when I personally am looking at the seed catalog, uh, I'm looking potentially for a better disease resistant package for certain things, especially like tomatoes and cucumbers and vine crops. I'm looking for uh, for flavor, um, which is sometimes described in seed catalogs, but not always. But, you know, we will try a new variety of something and and sort of a trial basis to see if it tastes better. And then I'm just trying to kind of strike that balance with what our customer feedback said. Um, And so we had actually a couple of people this year that said they wanted uh, more kale, actually, which uh, surprised me because, you know, there's kind of a joke in the CSA world about uh, CSA customers being upset that their whole box is a box of kale because uh, it's something that just grows really, you know, it grows really easy. You can get a lot of it. And it's kind of just, you know, if you don't have enough stuff, you just fill it out with kale. That's not what we do on our farm. Sure. But there are horror stories of, yeah. of former CSA customers that get a whole box of kale. Well, That's what do funny. I do with all this kale? Yeah. But we got the feedback that our members would like more kale and more varieties of kale. Um, and hmm. we are actually going to take them up on that because we, uh, I grew less kale uh, in 2022 than I did in 2021, and I actually should have grown a little more. We hmm. it sold for kale, it sold very, fairly well at the farmers hmm. market and was fairly popular for kale hmm. in our CSA boxes. Hmm. So I'm going to be looking at you know we have just like your standard curly leaf kale. 
Um, and I think I want to do one with a little more color, like a red, uh, sure. red, uh, it's like reddish purple curly yeah. leaf kale. I think that'd be kind of nice. So, yeah. um, so yeah, that's just, that's an example of like how we incorporate feedback and like look at yeah. a catalog and try and decide, well, how, how are we going to actually implement that? Well, it's interesting because I, I mean, I come from more of a crop and, and livestock background where really the only things to consider, I guess, in corn production is yield. I mean, they're number two corn. It's a commodity. It's all the same. You know, the only thing that farmers really factor in is yield at the end of the day, whereas this you're you're trying to consider flavor, you know, mm-hmm. adapted adaptiveness to a certain environment, you know, wherever you are and color is, you know, obviously you're selling it on a stand in front of people. I mean, color has to pop maybe in a way that so many people don't have to consider. So there's all these factors. And yeah, that that uh that's interesting no yeah for sure <clears throat> yeah and I, I mean yield is definitely a consideration for us i feel like it's maybe not as important as it is in in a, a row crop type system corn and soybeans that mm-hmm. kind of thing but it is important i mean um we had tried uh these lunchbox peppers uh if people aren't familiar they're like little bell peppers that have basically no no seeds in them the seeds that they do have are just located right where the stem attaches to the pepper Sure. Uh, and they're just like a little snacking pepper, pretty small, like two inches or so in size. Hmm. Uh, but the plants didn't yield well. I mean, we had like 50 plants in a tunnel. And I mean, we maybe we were doing something wrong, but we we uh, barely harvested any. And, um, you know, they had beautiful color. They had good flavor, what we did get, um, but they weren't very popular on our stand either. Uh, and so that was something that was like, well, they didn't yield well. They took up valuable space in one of our tunnels and they didn't sell well. And so that was something that we cut from our list of things that we were growing from Mm -hmm. 2021 to this most recent season, 2022. So I guess one last kind of follow-up question on this seed selection, I guess, is how many times will you give something a try if some sort of production issue, you know, I mean, will you just one shot and if it fails, it fails? Or do you, have you seen times where you try it a second time and one year was a fail for whatever reason, second year was a success or, you know, how many times do you give yeah. something a try before you rule it out as a not fitting? Right. Yeah. That's, that's a good question. And I, I think it kind of depends. One of it, if something doesn't turn out, I try to determine if it's potentially as some kind of farmer error. Like if I did something wrong, did I not keep mm-hmm. it, you know, did I keep the weeds out of it? Uh, did I let some pest, you know, take over it? Um, or maybe was there some other factor that was out of my control? Like, you know, too much rain or too little rain is more, more timely now, I guess. But uh, mm-hmm. um, so those are things that I take into consideration when I'm deciding whether to keep something or not. Um and I mean, there's been stuff where we've tried for a couple of different years and it's just like, this isn't, th- these aren't working out. Um, we need to drop them because we're, you know, we're spending too much time um, trying to figure this out. Or maybe it's just, you know, it's just not going to work in our system. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, one thing that comes to mind is uh, there was a tomato variety. It's an heirloom variety, actually. It's called Moskvich. Uh, and we had one year where it grew like really, really well for us. We had gorgeous, large tomatoes with very little cracking. And these were outdoors. Um, and so uh, that was just, you know, with the natural rainfall, which can be sometimes a bad deal for tomatoes, you end up with a lot of cracking and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but we planted them. So that year they were great. And I was like, okay, we found a really good 
field tomato. This is awesome. Um, and then we grew them two more years after that. And both of those subsequent years, they were just, they weren't any good. Uh, they were small. The yield was low. Um, it was just, they didn't perform. I'm not, our management was the same. Um, and so I'm not sure what happened there exactly, but for some reason they didn't work in our, in our system anymore. So, um, that was, you know, after two years of trying, after having our very first year of, of a big success, I would say we decided to pull the plug on those. So hmm. it's, it's sometimes hard to know. And sometimes you get a little bit like emotionally attached to it too, especially if you have like one year where it just was like gangbusters. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, trying to make it work and it's just eventually just got to say, Hey, we need to do something different. This mm-hmm. isn't working. Sure. Yep. No, that makes sense. Um, so I guess once you have the, you've selected for, you know, I guess you right now, 2023, you know what you're going to plant. You've, you've got the seed. The next question that I have, I guess, and maybe all this information that's just readily available in catalogs and things, but timing, I mean, different plants grow better in different temperatures. You already mentioned, I think lettuce is not a June, July type plant. Where do you, how do you decide what to plant and where and, and, and things like that? Yep. Yeah. I mean, that's just been kind of built up over the years. Uh, I think probably from your perspective, Jared, where um, you maybe have a little less experience with vegetables. It just seems like overwhelming because you have all of these different vegetables that, <laughs> you know, we got to figure out when we're going to plant these things. Mm-hmm. And I, I would agree probably, you know, I think I would probably feel the same way if I didn't have, if it was just a clean slate and I didn't know mm-hmm. where to even start. Um, but it sort of follows pretty, I mean, it follows the calendar in sort of a, almost a natural way. It's sort of, you know, you have a list of, let's say, I think our list of varieties is like 85 or so different varieties of things that we grow. Right. Yeah. But I mean, we're never, we never have to plant all 85 things in the same week. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have, you know, once we get started in the spring in let's say late April, the second half of April or the first week or two of May, we're planting like the most cold tolerant things like outdoors, uh, sort of things that, you know, spinach, potatoes, onions, radishes, things like that. It's a very, it's a smaller subset of our total list of things that we grow. We don't even have to consider, uh, except for maybe where we're going to put those things, you know, things like vine crops, which we're not going to be planting until the second half of May or or potentially later. And so, so we have a list of, of crops that are cold tolerant, uh, a list of crops that will be killed if we get a frost, mm-hmm. uh, and then some stuff that's kind of intermediate. Uh, and then that kind of puts our planting calendar together. It, it's it's kind of a lot, and you're definitely right. But I've used Google Calendar um, to keep track of things, and and Google Spreadsheets too. Uh, I should say our our lettuce planting plan, um, which basically includes planting lettuce in some way from roughly late February to early March, all the way till September, just to keep that kind of consistent supply. Mm-hmm. Uh, of lettuce for our customers. Um, and so that one I have in a Google spreadsheet just so I can keep track. So I, I label them by planting number one, you know, the day it's supposed to be planted. Uh, and then it's just a, re- it's just repeated. I might switch out the varieties to either have more cold tolerance or heat tolerance, depending on the season, but yeah. True. And so, and then the same thing follows for everything else for our, our, the rest of our vegetables, we'll use Google calendar and we'll say, well, we're, our first planting date, you know, if the conditions are right, you know, our first planting date for green beans, let's say, is May 21st. 
Um, I don't know if that that's not an actual date. I've just pulled sure. that out of thin air. Yeah. But yeah. Um, it's May 21st and we want to plant every three weeks. So then, you know, we'll just set up a simple uh, calendar thing in Google Calendar to say, OK, May 21st is our first planting of green beans if the weather conditions are fit. And then we'll have the event recur so that in 21 days, it'll pop up in Google Calendar again. And then I'll know on my phone, oh, yep, I need to plant green beans again. Sure. And the other nice thing about Google Calendar is if I'm not ready to go on May 21st, let's say it's the 28th where, you know, let's say it it rains and it's not going to dry out till the 28th. I can just move that event in Google Calendar and then it moves all subsequent events. So then I kind of hit that. I can still hit my succession timing the way I wanted to, even if my initial start date isn't exactly what I had planned, because weather is a thing and and it's not always going to work out. So, yeah, yeah. that makes sense. I like that idea. I know I think you mentioned that in the last episode of using Google Calendar, and I hadn't thought about the simplicity of just setting recurring events that that would just give you a reminder. And so you do that every time at the start and then it's kind of autopilot from there on out. Obviously you have to go out and do it, but it, you don't have to think it's not as, you know, as much thought every time there on out for secession. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have to like, and I've done this before and I'm, I'm looking to, to, so what I was going to say is I've, I've looked through my like stash of all my seeds and like picked Mm -hmm. out, okay, well I can plant this today and that today and whatever else, you know, rifled through my box and picked out what I thought I should plant that day. Uh, and I kind of want to get away from, I mean, I do want to get away from that system because it's inefficient and it's, it's just kind of silly to, to do it that way. Um, and so, yeah, I want to basically look at my Google calendar and say, oh, well today I need to plant sweet corn and green beans and another planting of carrots and beets and whatever else. Mm -hmm. And then I can grab those seeds or one of my staff members can grab those seeds as long as they know where, you know, where it's going to go out on the farm. Uh, and, and and then get it taken care of. And so it, it just make it a little bit easier. And then I can do all the planning kind of in the winter, you know, like I can put the Google calendar together today. I could do it today if I wanted um, and have it all ready to go. Um, and like I said, if I need to change anything, I just, you know, I just move my event and change all subsequent events and, and that's it. So. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. I like that. And the the day you're actually choosing for, like you said that, whatever, 21 days, how is that 21 days uh, of plantings? How is that date decided based on? Um, Yeah, by kind of by the harvest window on the on the crop. Um, So green beans, as our example, we'll just keep going with that. Um, Mm -hmm. And this is kind of my observation. Other farms may do it different. They may have, you know, they might do two weeks or they might do four weeks. It kind of depends. Um, But my observation from last year was that um, there's basically like a three-ish week window where green beans produce really well on our farm. And I mean, actually green beans, you keep picking them, they keep producing. But what you end up with is kind of this like wave of like, you have a flush of green beans, you pick them all. And then the plant needs a little bit of time to set new flowers and make more green beans. So there's a little bit of like a lag period there, like a, mm. a period where you, you're getting very few or no green beans at all. And I want to avoid that completely. Yeah. Um, and so my observation was that it seems like they produce for about three weeks, maybe a little bit less than that. Mm-hmm. But if my timing is at about three weeks, I could have a more steady supply uh, of green beans for CSA for farmer's market. And for other crops, that's going to be different. Uh, For lettuce, we're planting that like every 10-ish days. 
Uh, and in the summer, we might move to every week or so. Hmm. Um, and so, yeah, every crop, it just kind of depends on how fast we're going to go through it, how long the harvest window is for it. Uh, and some stuff, you know, you need to harvest it as soon as it's it's ready, basically. Like, yeah. I know muskmelon's a good example of that. If that thing's ripe, you got to get that out of the field or it's going to be full of bugs, you know. And, yeah, don't get me started on muskmelon. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah, yeah. So how much of the those 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 uh you know harvesting decisions are made based on a calendar and how much is actual observation like i mean is is it pretty consistent time wise or do you have to be always monitoring oh this is ready three days earlier than i expected or you know a week (laughs) um for all of our harvesting it's kind of visual monitoring i don't actually i don't have like a a harvest calendar in the same way i have a planting calendar okay um maybe i should i hadn't even thought about it um but for now, yeah, it's just based on observation. Um, sure. But I should maybe record or consider recording like our actual harvest dates on things. Um, it's been pretty rare where like something is like spoiled in the field because we forgot about it. Like sure. that just doesn't yeah. really happen. The yeah. farm is small enough. It's just three acres. I mean, you can walk across it in 15 minutes easily. And so it's been pretty rare where we've like missed i don't know if it's ever happened where we've just like forgotten about something so yeah so it's more visual and then you know if something is close we're checking it more frequently Mm -hmm. as opposed to i don't know we're not checking the winter squash in june or july for you know if they're ripe because there's no way they're not going to be ripe. they're not going to be ripe till you know the beginning of september so no that makes sense okay um so i guess then my in my mind, the next question that comes to me as I'm thinking about all this, once you got your seed pig- figured out, you've got it planted and scheduled as, as weed management. Um, and I imagine yeah. that's huge as an organic crop farmer. I know weeds all too well. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, I'm, I guess just how do you, how do you manage that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, weeds are probably the, you know, the, the number one reason I think that maybe not the number one reason, but it's certainly a very high percentage of farmers that get out of like growing vegetables mm-hmm. is due to just weed pressure and not wanting to be like down on their hands and knees, pulling weeds eight hours a day, yeah. you know, five days a week. And we identified that pretty early on and our weed control strategies have evolved over the years. And and we're sort of just incorporating, but like sort of best practices overall. Um, but but basically what it amounts to is first trying to have a, um, they call it a stale seed bed, um, which just basically means that uh, we've prepped a seed bed area. That means an area we're going to plant. But instead of planting, we wait a couple of weeks and we let whatever whatever weeds are there at the surface germinate and grow. And then we terminate them uh, usually either with uh, a very shallow tillage pass with like, um, I'm, we use a rototiller for our bed prep. Uh, I know that's a, a bad tool to use in a soil health world, but it's what we got uh, and that's what we use. I am looking into switching to a power harrow. I think that would be better, but uh, sidebar there. No, anyways. Okay. Oh, oh, I'll let you carry on. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we we can come back to that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Talk about seedbed prep. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, so anyways, so stale seed bedding, you know, either a, a shallow cultivation pass or a flame weeder is another option. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then planting into that reduces sort of our weed competition so that our plants can get a start. 
Um, and then we're stacking that on top of uh, a cultivation tool. We have a Tillmore walk behind tractor, um, which is uh, exactly what it sounds like. It's a tractor that you walk behind uh, and control it by, you know, um, it has a motor on it, so it's self-propelled, but, uh, you know, you're doing the steering on it manually and that kind of thing. And we have a couple different tool attachments for that. Uh, one is our time leader, which I'm, I'm very fond of. And so it's just these really kind of dainty, almost little wires that scratch the soil and disturb um, very small or just germinating seeds. Um, and it actually, it works so slick. Uh, I mean, you wouldn't believe it. It's kind of weird because if you get a lot of feedback from like a visual thing, you know, that the tine weeders maybe not exactly the right. I mean, it's a great tool and you should use it, but it's not mm-hmm. going to give you that sort of visual feedback, at least not right away. Yeah. Um, because if you can see the weeds already with the tine weeder, it's probably too late to actually control yeah. uh, a good percentage of them uh, with well, that. Yeah. And, and and it's funny, as you mentioned, these tools, as an organic crop farmer, we actually have a lot of the same ones. We have a rototiller that's 14 foot wide. We have a flame weeder for row crops and we have a tine weeder. And that's funny that just that you mentioned it because you're so right. We, we bought this, first of all, it was quite expensive. We bought it from Europe and it came over, got off the truck and we're like, we paid this much for this. And it's just like this <laughs> bar with a bunch of wires on it, but man, does that thing work? And, and like, as an example, to kind of illustrate what you had just shared about, you don't really maybe see it we had a farm that was very contoured. So, and in some spots it gets a little wider and others it didn't. And so there's this one particular spot where this 30 foot harrow um, tine weeder didn't cover two rows. So about 60 inches for maybe 20 feet. And rather than turn around and cover 30 feet, you know, back wide for 20 feet, right. 60 inches wide, I just left it as kind of a trial to see what would happen. And that strip grew up in foxtail and all. it was very, very effective on, especially it seems like the small grass seedings or weeds and stuff. But yeah, that, I mean, that was a perfect visual for or visual for us to see how effective that tool really is. And so I just thought I'd share that as you you kind of. Yeah, no, I've seen kind of uh, the same thing. Uh, My example, that's kind of the same thing is we've been using that in our potatoes the past couple of Mm -hmm. years. So we'll plant potatoes pretty early on. in the potatoes case, we're, we're not really stale seed bedding there because we want to get those in as soon as possible. So we're not going to lose that time uh, to stale seed bed. Um, so we're going to plant the potatoes right away, right? Sure. Um, anyways, so I use the tine weeder right over the top of where I plant the potatoes. Um, but I don't do it in between the rows because our potato rows are like is it 36 inches on center or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're, they're spaced out pretty far and our tine weeder is, is 27 inches wide, I believe. So it's, it's pretty small and it just take a lot of extra passes mm-hmm. and we have a tractor mounted cultivator for the potatoes. So I figure I can kill the weeds with the tractor mounted, uh, cultivator. Sure. Then. So anyways, where I'm going with this is I'm just going over the top of the row with the tine weeder. And then what ends up happening is uh, you'll have this swath right over the top of the row where there's essentially no weeds. There's a few weeds, mm-hmm. not too bad though. But then in between the rows where I didn't go with the tine weeder at all, you know, it's just it's like solid, like you know, mm-hmm. lamb's quarter, foxtail, whatever, whatever else happens to be there. Um, and so yeah, it's it's that you get that visual feedback. Then you're like, well, geez, that that tine weeder that really works, even though I didn't see any weeds when I was going through there. You know, then you see it. Yep. 
no that's that's a great example yeah so yeah cool. and and i guess just to kind of continue we're stacking that that tine weeder with we have a, a finger weeder set up from uh tillmore as well uh and so if you can kind of picture i'm not sure if you're familiar are you familiar with the tine or uh finger weeders jared i think i maybe know we have I think sort of fingers on the back of a cultivator, they're rolls, they're wheels yes. that kind of have the rubber things that go into the row. I think so. Yes. <laughs> that was a very poor visual description for people listening as I. <laughs> yeah. On my, uh... it, yeah. It's kind of hard. Maybe we can have like a picture on the podcast episode or something yes. of what the finger weeder actually is. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's a, uh, yeah, polyurethane fingers that spin. Mm -hmm. uh, and they go in your row or whatever your yeah. crop is, they go in the row and they flick mm -hmm. out small weeds. In my experience, it can work. It works a little better with large, a little larger weeds than the tine weeder does. It'll kill larger weeds than what a tine weeder will. Sure. But if they get the weeds get too big, it is ineffective on, mm -hmm. on large weeds. Yeah. Um, and so anyways, it, it works really well to kind of stack those tools together. So you, you run your, uh, tine weeder first. Uh, let's use uh, sweet corn as an example. Mm -hmm. So I'll run the tine weeder through my sweet corn. Um, you know, go over the rows with it, all the rows with it, and then I'll go. I'll switch out the tooling. I'll switch from the tine weeder to the finger weeder, and then I'll go through the sweet corn again with that. And by stacking those two tools together, uh, doing two cultivation passes on the same same time, that is a drastic 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 reduction in weeds like hmm. something like 80 to 90 percent i don't i haven't actually like studied this i don't have real data but just my anecdotal experience is that it's reduced you know the weed population significantly and so when we go back and hand weed or whatever it, it just really cuts down on that time hand weeding sure. which is what my goal was and what in initially like sort of made me pull the trigger on it was well if I could just cut the hand weeding that we had to do in half, you know, mm -hmm. or even by a third, it wouldn't take very long to pay for, mm -hmm. you know, this, this walk behind tractor, you know, if I'm reducing it by half or even like 80 or 90%, like the thing pays for itself in like one to two years, like pretty, pretty easily. And so that's, that's worked pretty well for us. I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. It doesn't work on every single crop. Uh, and not all the tooling works on every single crop. Um, I'll give an example. I found that the tine weeder in beets uh, is a little bit too destructive for my tastes on the mm -hmm. beets. It, it damages um, the leaves on the beets too much. They're the it, it just yeah it doesn't work well. I didn't I didn't like the way it performed on beets. The finger weeders and and the we have some sweeps on it too tender plant hose they're, they're very shallow i mean we're talking like one inch deep at most mm -hmm. um those work well in beets but it's just kind of figuring out what tooling works well too and experimenting a little bit with that mm -hmm. um and then the other thing is just staying on top of it if it basically if it rains like you need to cultivate your whole farm within like a week at, as soon as it's dry you need yeah. to get out there cultivate uh and, and kill those weeds before they're a, a larger problem yeah yeah no weeds is is one of the most important probably for well in in your particular farming 
everything is timely is important but with in, in ours anyway like it, weeds you have to be so timely i know it sometimes we've found when we're making hay and we get to them a little too late and then whatever tool you're trying to use just doesn't kill it and you know it has to be done at the right time or they get ahead of you and you end up out pulling them by hand and that's i mean yeah, yeah you're exactly right if you yeah. are not on top of it yeah you're going to be out there pulling them by hand and that is a an expensive proposition yeah you know yeah. if you can uh, weed a uh, uh, run through your, you know, it takes me 15 minutes or so to go through one of my plantings of sweet corn with, yeah. you know, the tying weeder. Mm-hmm. Probably 15 minutes to change out the tooling and, you know, run back up to the yard and back down to the field. Mm-hmm. And then another 15 minutes to run through with the other cultivation. So in 45 minutes, you know, I've, I've basically, you know, I've killed 90% of the weeds, most likely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when we go back, you know, we're spending, you know, we're maybe spending another hour out there hand weeding, but we're not spending, you know, four or five hours out there hand weeding, trying to save, you know, this sweet corn. So yeah. it's been huge. Yeah. Cool. Um, I'm curious, you mentioned a lot of tools that I'm familiar with. I'm, I'm just, at least in the crop farming world, the new thing coming out for organic cropping is the, the weed zapper where there's a you know, big generator on the back of the tractor and a bar out front that electrifies the weeds. Have you seen that uh, application in the vegetable farming side yet? Uh, you know, I haven't e- yet, okay. uh, at least not in sort of the small scale sense. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But there's no reason that that type. This past summer, we had a planting of beets that got a little out of control. And I was like, God, wouldn't it be nice if we had one of those, you know, because it was water hemp that was like, mm-hmm. you know, four or five feet tall or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the beets are like a foot tall at most or something. I mean, it would yeah. be so trivial to go through there and zap those weeds out if I had something like that. Mm. But it doesn't exist, hmm. um, at least in the veg- in the vegetable world and small scale world. So, um, but it is, I have, I've sort of seen those. I've, I've seen, I think one of my local uh soil and water conservation districts maybe rents one out or something i don't know yeah so it's uh Hmm. i've seen it and i'm like that would be cool but yeah i don't don't know of any company making one it's an opportunity for an entrepreneurial listener then if they they want to get into (laughs) that for small scale weed zapping perfect i I would love it i would buy one cool um Awesome. Well, what else on weed control? Uh, and I'm sure there's lots that we've just talked about, I guess, mechanical, uh, a lot of the mechanical options so far. Do you employ any other uh, weed management methods? Yeah. Um, I mean, we use the, uh, I guess, I was going to say we, uh, the the flame weeder uh, we use. We've been using that less and less over the, the years. And related to weed management, too, is actually... Um, this is anecdotal as well, but integrating cover crops, mm-hmm. it seems to me anyways, that anywhere that I've had a cover crop in the previous season, or even in the same season, if there's a cover crop previously, and I'm planting, you know, mm-hmm. some kind of vegetable, they're following it. There's usually less weed pressure. It's not zero, but it seems like it's less. Mm-hmm. And so having cover crops is just a way to kind of smother or manage or have something growing. So the weeds aren't growing. Mm-hmm. um has been pretty uh integral and it it's i don't know i think people talk about it a little bit but i I don't hear a lot of people talking about it as a tool in the toolbox but it, it certainly is for us so we try to try to keep cover crops down uh just to reduce weed pressure and then i mean this may be 
so far sounds like, you know, we're, we're not really hand weeding at all. And that, that's not actually the case. We, we definitely are hand weeding, pulling weeds by hand. Mm-hmm. Um, we've, I've just been deliberately trying to reduce the amount of time that we spend on that. So uh, other weed control strategies for us um, would be we use um, a decent bit of the black landscape fabric out on the farm. And especially for crops that are going to be sitting there for a long time. Uh, so like tomatoes and peppers, um, it's a lot easier to weed the little, you know, the little hole where the pepper grows than it is to weed the whole section of ground where the peppers would grow if I if I weren't using the landscape fabric. So that helps. I mean, it works. It works really well. The only thing that's annoying with it is weeding around the edges of the landscape fabric. Sure. Um, so and then finally, we still use a wheel hoe on our farm. I can get way closer to the row of plants with the wheel hoe than I can with the walk behind tractor and feel confident that I'm not going to kill uh, too many of my my plants. So uh, the wheel hoe has its its place, you know, especially for like really dainty crops um, and that kind of thing. So like carrots and beets, like just trying to get that first cultivation pass uh, where you're maybe not confident about using the walk behind tractor, but you could use the wheel hoe because it's just a little more delicate. Good. Um, I'm curious on the pulling manually anyway. Um, we started organic in 2020 and mm-hmm. my dad always talks about how much he wishes he had early on been intentional about pulling every weed because when he started and transitioned out of conventional, there was a lot less weed pressure than we have now. And now <laughs> it's, you know, gotten to the point where it's really not cost effective to pull every single weed and stuff. We can't, you know, it, it just, are you, I guess this leading into, are you intentional about pulling every weed? I mean, do you try to make it weed free because one weed turns into a patch, turns into a bigger patch, or is it kind of, how do you do that? Yeah. I mean, I would love to have it weed free. I think every farmer would, Uh, but it's not the reality. Um, uh, We do try uh, to not let stuff go to seed. uh, And so we do have an effort to kind of make that happen, but we're not always 100% successful on that. Uh, so I do try to have our staff train, like if you're in the green bean row and you're picking green beans and it looks like there's a weed there that's going to go to seed that it's worth the time to pull that weed while you're picking green beans or whatever it is. But we don't, I mean, we had weeds that went to seed last year, uh, without a doubt. And I don't, you know, I, I, I would echo, uh, that like we kind of started with a clean slate in a way because we our land was just in corn soy rotation uh in a non-organic system and so it was pretty clean and weed free the first like couple years but we uh weren't as good with our weed control then and we had a lot of weeds that did go to seed and mm-hmm. so now I'm, I'm guessing that our weed seed bed is is pretty high and it, it takes years um to get to get rid of those so you need multiple years where you're not contributing to that weed seed bed um to reduce that so i i think the drought years have helped you know we haven't had as many weeds germinate the past couple years um and that's that's helped it'll be interesting to see what happens in a in a wet year Mm -hmm. good points yeah i think 
my favorite was that I visited a farm once that says they are intentional about they pull every single ragweed on their farm. And even after the corn is eight feet tall, when the, the ragweed starts popping out of the corn, his wife stands on the second floor of their house and they're on the cell phone. He's on a cell phone and he'll hold the flag sticking up above the corn and she'll say, move three rows to your right and 20 feet ahead and I spot every <laughs> single ragweed in the field and pull it. And I think, you know, I mean, that's paid dividends for him and production and and yeah. long-term savings of hassle because now there's only a few of those weeds a year they got to pull as opposed to us we have acres and acres of weed patches in some spots where it's we have fields where we're just like this won't be crops for five plus years because it's too weedy so right yeah it's it's tough to kind of uh i guess recover in a way mm-hmm. um if you have a really extensive seed bed and and especially so i think uh you know, I could probably like, if we hired a, a team or just had like a, a, you know, we could weed the whole farm in probably a week if that's the only thing we were doing, like by hand, you know, mm-hmm. like we could go through if I had a, a team of like, say, eight people, maybe, maybe, yeah, about eight people, we could yeah. weed the whole thing in a week and have it, you know, weed free for that week, at least. That would be easy for me to do. But if you have 80 acres or 100 acres or 300 acres, that is is a different proposition you know you can't yeah yeah well i don't know if there's anything else on weed control that you haven't mentioned before we move on i guess the biggest thing is just staying on it i mean it seems it it does it you don't make any money weeding but you can save yourself money in the future by the amount of weeds Mm -hmm. that you have to pull um because anytime you spend weeding uh, is time that you're not spending actually producing something that you can sell. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have dedicated and made time to weed. And we've also not been afraid where if there's there's been a crop that just got overcome by weeds, then then we, we stop, you know, we'll throw in the towel. And we've done that uh, a couple of times, um, usually once or twice every year, there's something that, you know, the weeds just got out of control for whatever crop it was. And uh and we terminated it um mm-hmm. and started over so sure. i don't think there's anything wrong with that as long as you're just you know kind of conscientious of of that it's not what you want to do with all your crops obviously yeah no nope. that makes sense um so i guess then following this progression the next thing that comes to mind and maybe there's more to it in between the planting and the harvest but in my mind the next thing is harvest and is is there anything on harvest that's worth mentioning? I guess as far as I don't know if there are tools and equipment to make that easier. You're obviously not running a combine across it. So what what things do you do manually? Is there ways to more um, I don't know make it more efficient? Uh, I guess on the harvest side. Yeah, there there's definitely strategies. There's some tools out there for harvest to make things easier. Uh, I guess a couple of examples. We use uh, a bed lifter. It's called for digging our carrots and our garlic. Um, and it just sort of undercuts underneath the carrot or the garlic in the ground mm-hmm. uh, and sort of gently lifts up the soil. And then you can go back and just easily pull up the carrots or the garlic by hand there. So so that that works pretty well, as opposed to a lot of farms that just broad fork them out. Uh, and that to me sounds I mean, we grow a lot of carrots on, on our farm, you know, like several thousand pounds every year or more. Uh, and so broad forking that many carrots sounds terrible to me. Uh, so I'd rather have a tool to do that. Same with the garlic. So that's one tool. 
I think a lot of it is just talking to or thinking about for yourself if you don't have staff is just like efficiency and like making sure that you're not making unnecessary movements or unnecessary steps um, when you're harvesting. So a, a couple of examples of that would be, so if you're picking green beans, instead of picking one green bean and putting it in a bucket, you're picking, you know, a handful of green beans at a time, you know, eight to 10 green beans and then putting them in the bucket. So that it, it seems like nothing, right? Moving your hand to a bucket and dropping a bean in. But when you multiply that, you know, that fraction of a second times thousands and thousands of beans, it adds up to a significant amount of time after, you know, a whole summer. Mm-hmm. And so those kinds of like little things like that, which seem trivial, but really aren't add up to a lot. And so minimizing all those, we call it wasted moves. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is not, this is not an original idea by me. This is uh, from uh, a book, uh, The Lean Farm by Ben Hartman, uh, who talks about those kinds of things. So minimizing moves, we have uh, a John Deere gator that we use uh, as kind of our sort of like our harvest vehicle. I mean, it's, we use it every day on the farm. It's crazy how much we use that thing. And we just keep that, you know, at hand so that we're not hauling by hand, you know, all the carrots up to the pack shed. They go into the back of the gator and we run them up to the pack shed with that. A couple other examples of harvest tools. And this, this is something that we don't have, but it exists. It actually looks an awful lot like a, a combine with a, a bean header, but they have salad cutters greens cutters that look a lot like that Um, and they simply just you know they cut the salad greens close to the soil level and conveyor them up into a basket and then you have your greens cut you can cut a lot of a lot of greens for all the greens that we grow i actually don't know that that tool is worth it yet for us i'm not sure that we're quite at the scale and the types of lettuce that we grow don't necessarily justify it so, so there, there are things, there are other harvesting tools out there. It depends on your scale. Um, but by and large, you know, we're harvesting everything by hand and just trying to make sure that, that we have the supplies and things that we need at the ready. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also do a lot of bunching in the field, um, which actually is a pretty big uh, time savings. So, you know, people shop with us at the farmer's market. They buy a bunch of beets, a bunch of carrots, you know, it's... Mm-hmm you know, they're banded or tied together in some fashion. We have the bands or the ties out in the gator. Uh, and we bunch that stuff in the field before it's, it's uh, moved up to the pack shed to be washed. Okay. Um, and that helps save time. Cause yeah, you're basically just handling it one less time, right? Mm-hmm. Cause otherwise you're, you're handling it once when you're harvesting it, you're handling it a second time when you're banding it and a third time when you're washing it. And potentially a fourth time if you're, you know, well, a fourth time when you're putting it back into whatever tote it's stored in for sale. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so you can cut one of those handlings out of the equation by bunching in the field. So um, that's another one of those like, oh, it doesn't sound like it would save you a lot of time. But, you know, if you're doing several hundred bunches multiple Mm -hmm. times a week and Mm -hmm. it saves you, you know, a few seconds each time it adds up. Yeah, yeah. No, that just reminds me, I think is some sub sub uh franchise at Subway, Quiznos, Jimmy Jones, I don't know, talked about like what they had people just giving, you know, a handful of napkins in everyone as opposed to a policy they changed to like 
two napkins for a six inch and you know three for a foot long or something and that replicated over hundreds of sandwiches a day and thousands of sandwiches stores you know across the nation saved the company millions or billions of dollars or whatever over a year right. and it was like little things have big impact over time and scale so yeah right. yeah absolutely great example but yeah. absolutely cool um well then the last step i guess beyond the marketing which we probably won't get into today but would be like this uh, the the washing and pack shed and storage piece of this and maybe mm -hmm. part of this gets i don't well, i think this is more on the production side than the, the the business side so i guess we'll talk about it now if that makes sense to you but what does yeah. that look like with you or where where would you what maybe talk a little bit about where you're at because i think you got some pretty impressive infrastructure and then also where you know from a perspective of more of a beginner who may not you know, have what, what you've got access to today. Right. Well, I, I still remember vividly my, um, initial setup, uh, when I was just getting started. So I can talk about that. Yeah. I'll, I'll talk yeah. about our setup now first. Sure. Um, so in 2020, uh, we were lucky enough to be, uh, one of the recipients for the Minnesota department of eggs value added grant to construct, uh, our pack shed facility that we have now. Uh, and so in 2020, we built I think it's 30 by 60 feet uh, pack shed um, with sort of all, all the amenities. So it's got a bathroom for our employees. We've had employees for a number of years now, um, and that was super important to us. Mm. It's also just like handy. Even if we didn't have employees, I would want a bathroom in the pack shed. So I don't have to go into my house mm -hmm. you know, to use the restroom while I'm out working. It's, it's just sure. so much more convenient. So we've got the restroom in there. Uh, we've got a walk-in cooler. Uh, I think it's nine by fourteen feet, uh, so it's a pretty good size. Um, mm -hmm. There's been a couple times where it's like, well, maybe we should have built that bigger because we've had it full of vegetables. Yeah. Um, but it, it's about the right size. Um, and then we've got water in the pack shed, obviously uh, for the bathroom, but also for our wash bays for our vegetables. Uh, floor drains, huge, um, so that we can move all of our dirty water from washing vegetables out uh, our county. Uh, it was a little bit of a fight to make it happen, but our county does allow um, us to daylight that type of that type of water. If it's just water and soil, it can just go outside. It doesn't have to go into a sewage treatment system. Sure. Um, and then we have, it was sort of designed with our workflow in mind, which was super, I mean, it was so nice to be able to like think about what we wanted our workflow to look like and try to optimize the layout of the pack shed for efficiency. Uh, and so and so we did that. And for the most part, I think it, it worked out. There were a couple areas where the reality of when we moved in the pack shed didn't match up with our planning. Um, and so there's maybe a couple things. I don't know how we would have made it more efficient, but it didn't, didn't quite work the way I had planned, which is okay. And then finally, we have uh, heated uh, floors in the pack shed too, because we're doing a decent amount of late season uh, work. Um, we have a lot of storage crops in, in storage, beets and carrots. We have uh, several thousand pounds, actually, as I speak, uh, out in our walking cooler right now. Uh, and so I needed a space that was warm uh, in the winter uh, to be able to work on those crops, you know, wash them and prep them for sale, that kind of thing. So mm -hmm. it's it's definitely got kind of all, it was a very expensive building, but I mean, it was critical in kind of the centerpiece of the entire operation you know all all of the vegetables that we grow go through that building at some point and you know also serves as a, a workspace too so that i can 
work on equipment or build new tools and that kind of thing. So the pack shed really is kind of, uh, uh, I mean, it's the center point piece of the farm. I, I feel like a very important building. A couple other nice things that we have in it. We, uh, this I actually didn't originally plan, but I kind of wish I did. Uh, we installed this FRP board, uh, which if folks aren't familiar, it's basically just this plastic board that's really easy to clean behind our wash bays. I'm not sure how I let our contractor talk me into just using OSB back there, um, but it would not take very long for that OSB to disintegrate with the, just the amount of splashed water. No matter how careful you are, the water is going to splash mm -hmm. and just destroy that 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 stuff. It doesn't sure. it doesn't hold up to moisture <laughs> at all. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we installed that FRP board um, over the OSB as a basically a waterproof barrier. Sure. Um, that's easy to clean in our wash areas. Mm -hmm. um, and then in our wash space, uh, we have two wash bays, which is just a series of um, utility sinks. I found so far those to be the best kind of vessel for washing most vegetables. Uh, we also have uh, a spray, we call it the spray table, but basically it's uh, a table with like a mesh top. So the water can drain down and out uh, of the vegetables easily. Um, and then it has this nozzle that has like a fan, uh, a pretty high pressure water, high pressure water, high velocity water, mm -hmm. kind of spray off the dirt and stuff off the bunched vegetables like radishes and beets, mm -hmm. things like that. Um, and so the, and that's controlled with a foot pedal. It's kind of a cool little deal. It just makes things pretty easy and ergonomic to do. Sure. Um, and then we have a greens bubbler and a salad spinner as well um, for washing greens and and cleaning mm -hmm. that stuff up. So, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty, I don't know, it doesn't sound like much or look, I mean, it, it looks kind of cool, but yeah, it's it's pretty awesome. Yeah, no, it, it sounds like it to me. I'm, I'm curious to hear what you had before, because it, all of those things, none of it sounds like overkill. I mean, it doesn't sound like things that you, it all sounds necessary, you know, and important mm -hmm. to have. So I'm curious what, I guess, where you were before and, and, and how this is how, what, what this has meant to your business, I guess, to, to upgrade to this. Yeah, for sure. So before we were in my garage at my old house, <laughs> um, we kind of, the, the cars got excommunicated to the outside <laughs> Um, we built a walk-in cooler in the garage in one of the corners. It was like eight by eight or something mm -hmm. pretty small. I mean, it's a good size, but I mean, we filled it up pretty quick and, and we didn't have any water like in the garage. We had to run a hose from like the outdoor faucet, yeah. uh, into the garage. Uh, we didn't have any floor drains and the, the garage was kind of old and the grading wasn't great. So we had a lot of like water pooling, which is like a huge food safety issue mm -hmm. uh, in the pack shed. Um, we didn't have space for our, our dry tables, which are similar to the spray table, but just without the nozzle and just sure. an easy way for uh, the water to drain down and out of the vegetables. Hmm. Um, and then, you know, we were, we were, doubling kind of across so like the walk-in cooler was in like the back corner and so like the, just the layout wasn't efficient in terms of of you know when you're washing the vegetables when they're drying and then when they're going into storage it just wasn't efficient and then finally it was a small it was a two-car garage uh which i mean a two-car garage is nice but you know it wasn't it's nowhere near the size of our pack shed it's like a quarter or a fifth the size of what our pack shed is 
Um, and so we just have way more space. So, um, and I mean, we just made do with that, you know, for the first four years of the farm, uh, we drained all the water, you know, just outside. We had just a setup of some simple PVC pipes from our wash sinks um, that would drain the water outside. It wasn't glamorous, but uh, but it got the job done. There was no, well, there was there was heat, but it was a pretty rickety old heater, and it just it actually vented inside the garage, so it was pretty dangerous in terms of exhaust fumes and things like that. So, yeah, we didn't use it much, and I mean that is actually nice compared to some of the some of the setups I've heard folks doing. Um, but I mean, that's what we used and we just made it work. You know, people could do stuff just straight up outside with, um, if you had like a gravel pad or a crushed rock pad, uh, with some sinks and a water supply, you know, you can do the same thing on a pretty, pretty cheap budget there. If you're just getting started and don't have a building to be in, it's going to be a little rough, you know, in the late fall and, and early in the season, washing stuff when it's still cold out, but um, you know, we use a lot of, well, we use, uh, like protective gear, uh, in the cold season. So I have like waterproof gloves that go up past my elbows. Um, and like, a, I mean, I almost look like I should be on a fishing boat. I have like, you know, the waterproof, uh, overalls and a waterproof coat and the whole works just to stay dry. It's kind of the biggest thing, in, uh, in the cold season. Sure. No, that makes sense. And, and something you mentioned earlier that kind of brought a question to mind was the the sitting water and that's a health food safety issue. What food safety? I mean, do you have, are there certifiers that you need to go through for this? Uh, what's the considerations anybody at any scale has to make as far as food, mm. food handling, food safety? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. And, uh, I'm not 100% the expert on this, but I do have some experience with that. So under FSMA, uh, F-S-M-A, the Food Safety Modernization Act, there's a set of regulations based on the uh, total sales volume of the vegetables you're selling. Sure. Um, and if you're under a certain threshold, um, you are sort of exempt from some of the like the reporting um, and inspection type stuff that uh, is required for larger growers. I don't remember what the dollar thresholds are, um, but it's pretty, pretty high. Um, we're still, we're still exempt and, you know, farming is, is a full-time job for me. So um, it's, it's for like bigger farms. Think like, you know, the big lettuce farms in Arizona and California, that kind of thing. Um, so that said, um, I did take, um, there was a FISMA course that I took. Uh, it was probably in 2018, I think um where i got sort of my my certificate from that um and that was just a course on on sort of all of the potential risks uh and mitigating and ways you can mitigate those risks for for your small farm um and then there's also sort of unrelated to fisma but related to fisma in that it's food safety is uh gap audits good ag agricultural practices um, and again, it's a it's a series of mitigating techniques to uh, reduce or eliminate. I think you can never truly eliminate a food safety risk, but you can greatly reduce it. You know, things like not having standing water, 
um, having a protocol if you have you know animals on your farm for making sure that that uh, their feces doesn't get into food production areas mm-hmm. um, and and those kinds of things sort of all add up to uh, like a multi-layered food safety plan essentially which is what we have on our farm and teach our, our employees um, I mean it sort of boils down to sort of common sense type things like washing your hands after you use the bathroom, not going to work if you're sick. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you are are working with animals, like having a a way to mitigate their feces, that kind of thing. Um, Not having standing water, stuff like that. So, um, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, I clearly can't get into all of the details and what we have left of this podcast, but a good good start and and resources to check out, I guess, if people want to learn more. we're already over an hour and uh, haven't even gotten into the soil health piece of it. So that might just have to be another podcast altogether sometime. But uh, I guess I, I think I've learned a lot already. Um, and what I guess on what we've talked about, the production, you know, seed selection through, I guess we didn't talk about planting specifically either, but how the, 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 the logistics of planting, but planting through pack shed, anything that I haven't talked about that would be worth pointing out here or you know, addressing as we kind of wrap up? Um, I mean, we've touched on a lot of stuff. And I, I mean, I think, like you said, we could, you know, we could talk for a lot longer on a lot of yeah. different stuff. Um, yeah. And so I don't think we want to have too long of a <laughs> an episode. Yeah, no, <laughs> but fair uh, enough. Yeah. Uh, maybe we can leave it, leave it there and uh, yeah. touch on some other subjects in a future episode. Yeah. Well, remind people, I guess, where they can reach out if they want to learn more uh, about what we've talked about, how they can either, you know, resources or you specifically. Yeah. Uh, so you can look up our farm, Cedar Crate Farm. Uh, we're on Facebook. We have a website. We're on Instagram. Uh, if you want to reach out to me directly um, about my work uh, at SFA, uh, dan at sfa-mn.org. My website also has my farm email. So I have I have two emails. I check them every day. So you should be able to get a hold of me. Uh, through one of those channels. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dan. This this has been great. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jared. Had a lot of fun. Dirt Rich is produced by the Sustainable Farming Association. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider supporting us by making a donation or becoming a member at sfa-mn.org. Thanks for listening.